As you can see, it's a sicha connected to Pasha's Shlach. By way of introduction, before we start to read, let me give you this background. The Chumash gives us the mitzvahs, the 630 mitzvahs that are written in the law, in the Teda. The mitzvahs, as they are recorded in the Torah, are sometimes written in a remes, in a hint, right? This is a lashon in a medrash regarding Pasha's Chai Sada. That the story of Eliezer finding a wife of Yitzchak is repeated in great detail two or three times. And Harbe Gufe Teda, like Nitno Olabiramiza, there are many Gufe Teda, bodies of Torah law that are derived from a letter, from a nuance, and so on. We therefore assume, and correctly so, that the stories that the Torah records, and believe it or not, there aren't that many stories recorded in the Torah. You can count them. Specifically those stories that are told with great detail are there not as stories, but rather because they have messages, they teach us things. We have a, a famous Rabban, and Rabban brings a medrash that says that Maisa Ovis Simon Lebanon the stories of our office, of our patriarchs, are a simon, are a sign, and in a sinuskeach, they provide strength, lebanon, for the children. He speaks specifically about the stories of Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, but it's true as a whole. All the stories written in the Chumash, and in a broader sense, all the stories written in Tanakh, and in an even broader sense, all the stories written in Taita, including in the Gemara, are not just there because they happened. Because there are a lot of stories that happened that are not written. The stories that the Torah records are part of God's infinite wisdom, and they're there because they have messages, they communicate thoughts. And the message that they communicate is so significant, so deep, so meaningful, so substantial, that the mitzvahs of the Torah can be derived from a vov, from an extra word, from a redundancy of a law. And these stories are told over the course of Amudim, of many columns in the Sefer Torah, one story is told, one episode is related. Because the significance of these stories in the Torah underscore, they reveal the very neshama, the very soul of all of Yiddishkeit. And, and you know what the stories that are written in the Chumash? I mean, there's the story of creation, there's the story of the flood, there's the story of the Aflaga, there's the story of Avraham, the various aspects of his life, right? One of the stories written in the Torah with considerable detail is the story of the spies, the Menaglim. It's an important story. It, it, it had significant ripple effects that the Jewish people spent 40 years in the desert and if you want to schlep it you can say that this is actually connected to the fact that Moshe Rabbeinu himself was in the Midbar he passed away in the Midbar didn't go into Israel so the story has great ramifications the story of the spies has a significant carryover effect however and the Rebbe says this thousands of times in his sikhs over the years Taira is Milashen Hira a story may be very meaningful even the story of creation itself, very important story, right? If this story was not telling us something that we need to know in our behavioral lives today, the story would not be recorded. No stories are found in the Torah because they're interesting or because they're important. If a story is recorded in the Torah, it has a message. A message that's so significant that halachas can be alluded to in a hint, in a remez, and this story has to be told in great detail. Which is why in Hasidus, so much of Hasidus is devoted to analyzing the stories of the Torah. In the belief that there's an expression, but to the 
to the Gemara's stories, most of the mystical secrets of Teda, the ideas of Hasidus, Kabbalah, are found in the Agodis. In Agodis means in the stories. In other words, on the surface of it, there's no question, of course. There's nothing deeper than Halacha and, and, and the practical Yiddishkeit. And, and nobody should misunderstand this. The most important dimension of Yiddishkeit is the Maisa HaMitzvah, doing the mitzvahs and not doing things we're not allowed to do. At the same time, a lot of the subtleties, the dimensions, the different layers and levels of interpretation and modern interpretation and kavana and spirit of Yiddishkeit are found in the stories. And therefore, Hasidus especially manipulates so much the Midrashim. So much Hasidus explains the Midrashim and shows us the, the depth, the Torah value of the Midrashim. And by so doing, it also inspires a much more meaningful appreciation of Yiddishkeit and oftentimes it gives us a whole new dimension to what it means to be a Jew. This is a broad introduction that really is relevant not only to the specific issue we're going to be addressing, but it's relevant to stories in Torah as a whole. Every story in Torah, if it's written, it's because it has meaning. It becomes our job to figure out what the meaning is and what the message is. Now let's talk specifically about the story of the Miraglim, about the story of the spies. Okay, let me give you some chronology here. I don't want to get too technical, but I'll do this as efficiently as we can, okay? The Jewish people left Egypt on the 15th day of Nisan in the year 2448, right? Exactly a week later, on Wednesday night to Thursday morning, the sea was split. That was the 21st of Nisan. On the 6th or the 7th of Sivan, which was 52 days, 52, not, I mentioned this last week, not 51 days, 52 days after the Jewish people left Mitzrayim, the Torah was given. According to Rashi, the next morning, Moshe Rabbeinu went up to Harsina, he spent 40 days there, he came down the 17th of Tammuz. The Jewish people made the golden calf the day before the 16th of Tammuz. When Moshe came down, they saw the golden calf, he broke the luchas. He was very upset, of course, he gave people to drink from the water, and some people died in the plague. The next morning, the 18th of Tammuz, Moshe Rabbeinu went back up to the Harsinai, and he remained there till Erev Resh Chodesh Elul. So I guess the 28th or 29th of oh, this is this is a little bit controversial, but we're not going to go into the controversy. He came down and he said, God has forgiven us. And the very next morning he went up a third time. And this time he took with him tablets. Luchas. The first luchas God gave him. The second luchas he had to dig out of his tent. Hashem told him, dig in your tent and you'll find these massive stones of sapphire, of sapphire, which apparently is pretty heavy and pretty valuable. Two gigantic slabs of sapphire is pretty expensive. Meshav Bede brought them up to the mountain. Hashem wrote on them the second Luchis. He came down on Yom Kippur after he was told that God had forgiven us for our sins. The next day, the 11th of Tishrei, Moshe Rabbeinu gave us instructions to build the house of God. And as we've discussed in the past, they finished building it on Hanukkah, 25th of Kislev. And it sat in storage, in the, underneath the clouds, until the 23rd of Oder. And then they proceeded to build it. Every day they'd put it up, they would do their services, and they would take it down. The next morning they put it up, do the services, take it down, until the eighth day, which was Rish the first day of Nisan. And then it was put up to stay. On that day, a lot of very interesting things happened. The first of the princes brought the offering of inauguration. Yehuda brought his offering of inauguration on the first day, and then each of the next 12 days of Nisan, they brought offerings, each Nasi, each prince, each tribe on his respective day and its day. It was also the day that Adam was initiated into the Kahuna. It was also the day that Hashem's Shekhinah rested in the house of God. And it was also the day when, tragically, 
Nadav and Aviyu died, were killed because they had brought up a Zara, an unlawful fire in the Beis HaMikdash. This happened on the first of Sivan. The first day of Iyar, God told Moshe Rabbeinu to make a census, to count the Jewish people again. You know what I'm talking about? It starts, the first day of the second month. And Moshe proceeded to count the Jews. They left Mount Sinai on the 20th day of Iyar. The 20th day of Iyar. They left. Now, this is very, very deep and abstract mathematics. Let's see if we can work this out. They arrived at Mount Sinai on the 1st of Sivan. They left the next year, the 20th year. So they were there a year minus how many days? 10 days. You see, I knew it. Um, I am joking. If I'm corny, I'm sorry. Can't help it. It's just my personality. Okay, on the 20th of Sivan, they left Har Sinai. The original plan was they would travel for three days and they would go into Eretz Yisrael. In other words, they should have arrived in Israel that year, the 22nd or the 23rd of year, in the year 2449, and that would have been the end of the program. Okay? Three days. Now, it says in, in Pasuk that it was a journey of 11 days, and Hashem hastened it that they should be able to travel it in three days. But it didn't happen. Why didn't it happen? Because the Jewish people protested. They protested. At first there was one protest, and then they protested the Mon. And the culmination of those protests was that they protested the, the fact that they had no fleshics, had no f- meat. They wanted to have meat. This started on the 22nd day of the month of Iyar. They had this massive protest. But the Chumash and Pashat Balaischa, the story is described in particular, in specific, in a lot of detail. And again, like I just mentioned, it's a tale that tells a story, especially in so much detail. It's a very, it's a timeless story. It's a story that speaks to us. It's just our job to figure out what Taita's message is. And what happened as a result was two things. Number one, Hashem told Moshe Rabbeinu to appoint 70 elders. So Moshe Rabbeinu had helpers, a, a hierarchy. He wasn't the personal leader of Kwaisal, he had 70 elders. Now, we already know from a long time ago that Moshe Rabbeinu had a whole system of judges, but judges are scholars. These 70 elders not only were scholars, but they actually were prophets. Nevi'im, Hashem gave them the powers of prophecy. And they became Moshe Rabbeinu's helpers. The second thing that happened was Hashem gave them flesh. Meat. And he said, you're going to eat this meat for 30 days until you're going to be sick of it. Mm-hmm. And they spent 30 days eating meat, and people started to die. Some people died right away, other people died over the course of 30 days, but there was 30 days of, of meat gorging, after which the Jewish people were so sick of meat, they didn't want to look at it again. So if it started on the 22nd of Iyad, it ended on the 22nd of Siva, right? Right? Okay. They were about to leave, and something else happened. Let me know what that was. Miriam became a leprous. Miriam figured out that Moshe had separated from his wife, and she was very unhappy. Now, you know the story in the Chumash. That Sipoida heard that there were 70 men who had become prophetess, and she became hysterical. I feel terrible for their wives. So Miriam says to her, what are you talking about? She says, what do you mean what am I talking about? I don't have a husband. Moshe the man who had separated from Miriam, from Tipeira, and Tipeira felt bad that none of the other 70 women who were Agunis. When Miriam heard this, she said, oh boy, my brother's getting carried away with himself. She herself was an Aviyah, she was a prophetess, as was Arin, and they were married. And they didn't know that Hashem had told Moshe Rabbeinu that since Liba Gas, that Moshe sees prophecy at all times, not just when he's ready, as other prophets do. So he was the one person, I once spoke about this at length, who was told to be celibate, and he separated from his wife. So she spoke Lashon Hara, and she became a Mitzayda, a leprous. So the cloud of God went up to indicate 
Let's go. Move. And it says in the Pasuk, this Miriam, the nation waited for Miriam to cure from her tzaras, from her leprosy, which took seven days. So if, they, if she became a Mitzayr on the 22nd of Sivan, it ended on the 29th of Sivan. On that day they traveled, and they came to a place called Chatzeris. Apparently, apparently on the same day that they came to Chatzeris, now remember, they still have every plan to go into Israel. In other words, in the meantime, they're traveling at a very fast pace. Hashem has shortened the desert, so to speak. A journey of 11 days has traveled in three, and they're at the verge of going into Israel. They're in the southern, southeastern border of Israel. They're on the way in. And the Jewish people said, before we go, let's send spies. And on that day, Moshe Rabbeinu goes to God and says, should we send spies? And God tells him, what does God tell him? For the first time in Moshe Rabbeinu's illustrious career, God says to him, do whatever you want. Moshe was not accustomed to being told, do whatever you want. Moshe Rabbeinu was accustomed to consulting, getting straight answers, and doing what God understood. Our Sikha Rabbi is going to delve into this particular. What is the significance of the, quote, do whatever you want? Now let me clarify something. When you learn Chumash and Rashi, and I did, I was a little boy, when I learned Chumash and Rashi, the impression we got was that Moshe comes to Hashem and says, listen, the Jewish people want to send spies. Should I do it or not? And Hashem says to Moshe, I'm not telling you to do it. If you want to do it, do it. When we were children, we learned this Chumash, the impression that we got was that God wasn't very happy about it. That was the impression we got. Hashem says to Moshe, you really shouldn't do this, but if you really want, I'll let you. And we always wondered as children, if Moshe Rabbeinu got the sense, got the feel, got the flavor of Hashem, that he wasn't so happy about the sending of the spies, why did he do it? You understand? That's what we're going to discover in this Sikh. On the 29th of Sivan, Moshe Rabbeinu sent spies. The same day, it all happened very quickly, apparently. The spies left, and they returned the night of, anybody know? Tisha B'av. And it says in the Pasuk that that night, the nation cried that night. And God said, you're crying for no reason. Boy, will I give you a reason to cry. This was another Tisha B'av. And the spies came back, and they cried, and then the next day they wanted to make a whole uprising, and Hashem came along, and Hashem said, first he wanted to wipe them out, wanted to erase the Jewish nation and start from scratch. And as it says in the Pasuk, this was, I believe it's Sircha and Revi, the first to- fourth time the Jewish people had stepped out of line, and Moshe Rabbeinu was at a loss, didn't know what to do. And um, he says to Hashem, you can't kill the Jews, even if you want to, because the Egyptians are going to say that you don't have enough power to take them into Israel. And Hashem says, you're right, I won't kill the Jews, Ulam, however. They ain't going into no land. They're staying in the desert. And Hashem swore, and when Hashem swears, by the way, he doesn't change his mind, that they're going to die in the desert and their children are going to go into Israel. And as soon as Hashem swore that they're not going to go into Israel, all of a sudden they had a change of heart, they wanted to go, and Hashem said, oh no, now it's too late. And it says in the Chumash that they didn't listen again. And they went to fight a war against the Canaanites. And they got chormod. They got pummeled. They got destroyed. Like, a, like, a, like, a, like, a, like a very, being attached by a horde of bees. And the Jewish people spent 40 years in the desert. And a very strange ritual unfolded. Every year, the night of Tisha B'av, all men who were 59, that means say they were in their 60th year, would dig a collective grave, and they would go to sleep in it. 
and in the morning they had all passed away and they'd be buried. This was a ritual that was performed year after year on Tisha B'Av. In other words, Hashem didn't kill them all right away. He let them live what was considered a life into their 60th year. And the night of Tisha B'Av, all those who were going to turn 60 the next, between then and the next Tisha B'Av would dig this collective grave and they'd go to sleep and they all knew it. In the morning they'd come and they'd be gone, they'd be dead, and they'd bury him. The last Tisha B'Av in the desert, the people who were in their 60th year did the same ritual. They dug a grave and they went to sleep. Small problem. They woke up in the morning. <laughs> so the Jewish people had thought that maybe they had miscalculated because don't forget, they were, they were following a calendar, following by the moon. So they went to sleep the next night again in this pit. They woke up in the morning until the moon was full. When the moon was full, they knew it was not Tisha B'Av. And that, of course, is Chamisha Asa B'Av, the 15th day of Av. And as you probably know, Tisha B'Av is a sad day. The 15th day of Av is a grave of great joy. One of the joyous things that occurred was that Nifzikal Gizeinus Meisei Midbar. The Jewish people became aware that God was sparing the last people. He, he was not going to kill, not going to put, have pass away those people who technically should have passed away because they were part of the generation of Jews. In other words, they were, in their, they were 20 when the Gezeda started. They should have passed away in Hashem's spare day, and they had this chuzz to go into Eretz Yisrael. This is the story. This is, so to speak, a chronology. This is a step-by-step for the best, to the best of my ability, of course. There's, a lot, there's, some, there's some aspects of this which are very controversial, but what you don't know doesn't hurt you, <laughs> as they say. This is as much as you're going to hear. This is basically an overview. Our tzicha discusses the story of the spies. The story of the spies basically is as follows. The Jewish people came to a place called Chatzedes, or to Midbar Poran, actually. It says in Chumash, Midbar Poran. Whatever that means. Midbar Poran, there's so much controversy as to what these places are. Take a look at Rabbi Ayah Kabbalt Chumash. I've told you that a lot of times, and I don't think I've succeeded in getting one person <laughs> to actually look inside. He, does, he, he gives you a map. Everything, of course, is subjective. I mean, he, the living Torah, Rabbi Ayah Kaplan's Chumash. He has maps. You should know you'll find similar maps in his commentary, his translation of the Miam Lois. Also, he gives you maps um, as he goes through the Chumash. Unfortunately, he never finished the Miam Lois because he passed away. Other people are finishing it, but he did a lot of it. And he made maps to indicate to the best of his limited ability, and the man was a brilliant, he was a genius, um, where he understood the various locations to be. Okay? Uh, he has some interesting maps. I, I once taught history. Trust me, I'm not a qualified history teacher. But when I taught history, I had to find these maps, and it, it was very helpful. There's a lot of controversy about a lot of stuff. So what's new? <laughs> um, but the particulars of the story as they're written in the Chumash, and when I say written in the Chumash, I'm referring to two accounts. The first is in Pasha's Shlach, and the second is in Pasha's Tvarim in the book of Deuteronomy, where the Torah repeats the story again and adds some more detail. And that is, they came to this place called Midbaparan, and then they know that they're about to go to Israel, and there was a in mass approach to Moshe Rabbeinu's house. Moshe Rabbeinu opens up his door, and the whole Jewish people are standing there. Men, women, and children, no respect, no order, and they all scream, Nishtachan, Moshe we want to send spies. And the argument, of course, was we're going into the land, Whenever a nation goes to battle, before you go into battle, you do, what do they call it, reconnaissance. They call it intelligence, the gathering of intelligence, right? Spy work, we want to send spies who will be yachpur l'anosu'aretz, will give us back some intelligence about, about the terrain, about the people, about the armies, about the agriculture. We want to know what we're getting ourselves into. 
And Moshe went and consulted Hashem, and Hashem said, do whatever they want. And Moshe agreed. And he selected 12 men that are called Kulam Anoshim. They were all considered men. The Torah calls them men. They were all very fit. They were kosher. They were good people. And he sent them. And Rashi indicates, Rashi says, not right here, but he says, that when they walked out of the Jewish camp to go to Israel, they had already decided what they would report back. It wasn't based on what they saw. They had already, it was already planned that they were going to come back and give a negative report, essentially. And in fact, Moshe Rabbeinu gave Yeshua a special blessing, that Hashem should protect him from the Eitzah, from the intent, bad, bad endeavor, the bad intentions of the Menagrim. And they went to Israel. Why, though? It just doesn't make sense. Of course it doesn't. When you learn Hasid, this makes a lot of sense. We'll talk about it. I mean, this is where we're going. This is where we're headed as we learn this Sikha. In Mitzvah Hashem, with the help of God Almighty. And they came to Yisrael, and they had Kfitzas Haderech. Rashi says that to walk the length and breadth of Israel, which is Daud Meis Parsal, Daud Meis Parsal, which is very, it, it's a very, very big area, far bigger than what we consider Israel. But okay, we'll do that with a rabbi. It should have taken them a lot longer than it took them. Hashem made them walk very quickly, and they managed to walk the whole length and breadth of Israel, from east to west, from south to north, from north to northeast and from northeast to southeast. They made a complete circumference, a complete circle on all the way to Israel, and they checked it out. And they did a journey that should have taken them many times more than 40 days. In a short span of 40 days, they walked the length of Beth of Israel, they came back and they reported. And they brought back food. They were massive. It says that it took 10 spies to carry one cluster of grapes. I would imagine you all speak English. A cluster of grapes means a bunch of grapes that you buy in Raskin's food store at the best of times for $1.29 or for $2.49, depending on the kind of grapes and whether it's in season or it's out of season, it has pits, doesn't have pits. A cluster of grapes is a bunch. And it took 10 men to carry a cluster of grapes. And one of them dragged a fig, and the other one, I'm sorry, eight men to carry a cluster of grapes. And the other one dragged a date, and the other two didn't take anything back. Those were Yeshua and Kalev. And the reason is because they brought back these fruits not to show how wonderful the land was, but to show that the land was a freakish land. And the point was to indicate that the people living there are freaks too. They were, all, were massive. The men living there were giants. And the Jewish people would be defeated in battle. And that was a very difficult place to live and so on. And they came back and they said, oh, we went to Israel. What a wonderful place. Take a look at the fruit. Isn't it glorious? I mean, one grape can feed a family like a watermelon. And then they said, Ephes, however... However, even though it's so wonderful, the people living there are just as freakish and mighty as the food are, and we're never going to be able to conquer them. They live in the hills, they live in valleys. It's kind of it's not open warfare, you know. It's it's uh, it's uh, it's warfare that's done in hills. It's impossible. We're never going to succeed. And they basically scared the daylights out of the Jewish people, and they told them, in short, God is able to defeat Egypt. God cannot fight with 31 gods, 31 kings, 31 nations, and we will not succeed in conquering Israel. Like Saul's going to eat us up alive. And the Jewish people went into hysterics, panics, and said, you're right, we don't want to go. And they came to Moshe Rabbeinu in protest, and they said, Moshe, why did you take us out of Mitzrayim? Now we're all going to die in the desert. What's going to happen to our kids? And they basically got carried away. Kalev and Yeshua, who had gone along with the spies, who had also played along with the spies, when they were walking back, the spies 
made clear what their intentions were. And if Kalev and Yeshua had indicated anything to the contrary, they would have slaughtered them, pushed, they would have killed them. So Kalev and Yeshua acted along like as if everything was cool. And when they came back to the camp and everybody's up in arms, Kalev gets up on a stage, on a, on a platform of some sort, and he announces, not only this did Ben Amram, the son of Amram, what should have been to do for us? And everybody got quiet. They were ready for another, another fire and brimstone speech against Moshe Rabbeinu. Because from that, what they understood, Kalev was siding with the spies. And as soon as they got quiet, Kalev said, not only is Moshe taking us to this parable land, he took us out of Egypt, and he provided us with man, and he gave us the clouds, and Kalev proceeded to say favorable things. As in Chumash, the Jewish people wanted to kill Kalev and Yeshua, Kipshutai. And all of a sudden, a cloud appeared that represented the presence of the Shekhinah. And originally, Hashem wanted to wipe the Jewish people out. I mentioned this before. Moshe Davant. And Moshe said, if you're going to kill the Jewish people, the Egyptians are going to say that you had no koyach to take them into Israel. And Moshe says, you're right, I won't kill them, but and Hashem swore that they would die in the desert, and that's taka what happened. They spent a whole generation in the desert. Every year in Tishbab, as he mentioned, they would pass away. At the end of the 40 years, when the generation was gone, the next generation, the children whom they were so worried about, had the schus to go into Yisrael and conquer it and settle it. This is essentially the story of the Meraglim. Give it, I mean, you know, in a very, very overall, very broad way. The Pshutei Shalmikah, the story, the, the surface of the story, the Chumash and Asher story is, the spies went to Yisrael and they saw these gigantic men, these giants, and they also saw the people who were living in Arya Prozis, they were not living in fortifications, which indicated that the, Egypt, the Canaanites were very confident that they could defeat the Jewish people on the battlefield. And it scared them and intimidated them. But as Michal pointed out, this is very hard to comprehend. So Hasidus offers a whole different commentary on the story of the spies from start to finish and explains it mystically, philosophically, whatever it is. And guess what? It's a good one. I agree with Hasidus on this occasion. Okay, what's the explanation that Hasidus offers? The explanation that Hasidus offers is simple. When the Jewish people lived in the desert, they had no responsibilities. None. Food, clothing, shelter were all provided by God supernaturally. What were they doing? They were being religious, studying Torah and doing mitzvahs. They're going into Israel, what's going to happen? No more miracles. Food is going to come from the earth. They're going to have to be farmers and work hard. Water is going to come from rain, which they have to pray keeps coming. And clothing are not going to grow supernaturally. The clothing are going to wear out. They have to buy new ones and make new ones and so on and so forth. And they're going to be expected to keep the same mitzvahs. So the Jewish people said, it ain't going to happen. You can be a Jew in a desert. If you live in a desert, and Hashem artificially, supernaturally provides for all of your material needs, you can be spiritual people. But to live in what we call the real world, and still be a spiritual people, are impossible. In other words, the way Hasidus understands the Miraglim's protest, it wasn't that they were intimidated by the size of the Canaanites, or the, the freakish size of their fruits. They were intimidated by the thought of having to be a Jew in the real world. Of living a physical life with physical responsibilities, physical obligations, and being spiritual. They saw it as a conflict. And the three words in the Torah which state, Eretz Eicheles Yeshveha, a land which consumes its inhabitants, were very, very critical in the dialogue or in the discussion of the Menagam. They said, we're going to go to Israel. It's going to eat us up alive. It's going to spiritually destroy us. We will not 
have the fortitude, the strength, the spiritual ne- energy necessary to be Jewish in a place so un-Jewish like Eretz Israel. And they protested going into Israel, not because they were afraid of armies or anything to that effect, but rather they were afraid of the spiritual downfall, the spiritual decline that they would suffer. And they convinced the Jewish people, you can only be a Jew in the desert, you can't be a Jew in the real world. What's the problem? The problem is this. I remember as a child, I'll tell you an interesting thing, it's connected to today. Today is the second day of Sivan. On the second day of Sivan, Hashem chose us. The Bechira, the choice of the Jewish nation, happened on the second day of Sivan. Hashem chose us because we agreed to the terms that Hashem set. And if you look in the Chumash, in Pashas Yisrael, the Torah describes the terms that Hashem set for Klai Yisrael on this day in the year 2448, 3,311 years ago today. One of the things that's written in this week's Pasha is that it says, Atem de Isem. You have seen, Asher Asisi Lemitzayim, this is what I've done to the Mitzrayim. And I carried you on the wings of eagles, or whatever Neshet means. Neshet is translated out to be an eagle. And I brought you to me. So it says in Rashi, there are, there are whatever, over 9,000 species of birds. What's the distinction of a Neshet? So Rashi says, most birds carry their young in their talons, in their feet. Why? Because there are birds of prey that fly higher than them that we just take them right out of their wings. So when a bird flies and it wants to carry its young from one place to another, it carries it in its feet, in its talons. The exception of the nesher. Why? Because the nesher flies higher than any other bird, so it's not afraid that somebody will swoop out of this, uh, above them and take their birds out of their wings. They worry only about a person shooting an arrow into them and instead of the arrow landing in their offspring, which is in their talons, let the arrow hit them, the Neshet reasons, and the children, the offspring, will survive. So when I was a little child, I imagined this taking place. I mean, physically, by the way, I, I don't know what a Neshet is. I, mean, I don't know a bird, Pachlal, that carries its offspring from one place to another. Certainly, a bird that carries its offspring from one place to another in its wings. Exactly how that's done, I don't know. But this is what says in Chumash. Um, I imagined in my head, a man standing on the ground with a big spear and throwing it up into the sky and hitting the, the Nesher square and the Nesher comes falling out of the sky with a spear through it and a little bird never stuck in the sky. And I remember asking my Malamid, what's going to happen to the little bird? So the little bird will open up its wings and fly. Can the little bird fly as well as the mommy tati bird? No. So what's going to happen? The little bird will fly lower in the sky but it will be able to fly with its wings. That's the way my Malamad answered the question. So I imagined a bird soaring in the sky and then being shot out of the sky and then a little baby bird flying at a much lower altitude and surviving. What's the marshal? The nimshal? The nimshal is, in the desert, Hashem carried us on the wings of eagles. So we soared. We were spiritually in a higher place than we've ever been and ever will be till this gospel Mashiach Satkeinu. Take it from the Yad Mamish. And then, the bird swooped out of the sky and we're flying at a much lower altitude, but we're flying on our own power. And this is the transition from living in the desert to going into Eretz Yisrael. In the desert, Hashem carried us on the wings of eagles, so we soared. And the spy said, we've got to be nuts to go into Israel. The eagle, the mother bird, is going to land, and we're going to be soaring on our own power, we'll be going a lot slower, we'll be much more vulnerable, we'll be traveling at a much lower altitude. The difference, of course, is 
So when we went into Israel, we flew slower in a lower altitude, we were much more vulnerable, but we flew on our own strength. Versus in the Midbar, we talk about flying high, but we're flying on the artificial strength that Hashem provided for us. And the difference is obvious. It's necessary to be a period of, of artificial support that Hashem provides, but ultimately the idea of Yiddishkeit is not that God should carry us through life. But we should develop the strength to carry ourselves through life. Though we cannot do as well as we would if Hashem carried us, but it would be our own efforts, our own accomplishments, and our own success, which may not be so meaningful to us, but it's very meaningful to Hashem. So the spies calculated, we have to be stupid to go into Israel, we're soaring on the, bird, the wings of eagles. And they were wrong because Hashem wants us to fly on our own power, on our own strength. Maybe we'll fly, low, fly lower and slower and be more vulnerable, but that's called avoidas Hashem. We're actually serving Hashem. So the Baragim were wrong. But we've now explained their mistake as being a metaphysical one, a spiritual mistake. It was a mistake based on the understanding and the recognition that they're closer to God in the desert, which is not deniable. They were closer to God in the desert than going into Israel and being agriculturists, being farmers. Does anybody have any questions? So essentially what we've done today is given an overview of the story. We've explained the basic design as Hasidus portrays it. Tomorrow we will delve into the Sikha proper. With the help of God Almighty, I will see.